Welcome to Brainwaves Bistro. Grab yourselves a cuppa, kick back, and join us for mental health talk with a positive vibe. Here's Julianne. The name Brock is famous in Australia, if not worldwide. And many people will think only a bed Brock as Peter Brock's partner and the mother of his three beautiful children. Now, Peter Brock is arguably the greatest ever Australian driver, a motor racing legend. And it's not arguable with me. I, to me, he was the best. And we sadly lost Peter in such a tragic circumstance. But this lady, Bev, has moved on and is a force in her own right. Bev has an Order of Australia and the Prime Minister's Centenary Award, that's a bit like the Presidential Awards in the US, for her enormous contribution to our country. Welcome, Bev, and of course our co-host today, Barb Smith. Welcome, two ladies whom I admire and dare say I'm blessed to have as friends. Hi, girls. Hey, Julianne. Hey, Barb. Thank you so much for the intro. Hi, Hi, Julianne and Bev. Easy, easy. And <laughs> Barb, you've um you're an accomplished speaker, Bev, author of Peter Brock Living with a Legend, then Peter Brock and Bev's own story, Life to the Limit, in which you relate your knowledge and experience in pursuit of life's fulfillment. You have been teaching life skills for 20 years. Please tell us about this, Bev. <laughs> Well, let's go back to the beginning because when I, I grew up in a, a, a little isolated community, barefooted, horse and cart until I was seven, you know, this this totally simple one of seven kids' childhood went on to become, uh, I got a scholarship, I loved education, uh, went on to um, do teacher training, uh, home, uh, trained as a home economist, taught science, uh, moved into state to New South Wales, married, all those things. But in, in doing so, you go through, um, because back then, you know, I'm, I'm well into my 70s now, back then there were no books, no people to talk to. So I was a person, a kid who didn't fit in with my family. I, I knew, I thought I was adopted. I used to have precognitive dreams that came through, played out a week later, a month later. I saw Peter's death. 14 months before he died, I saw the accident. I saw his funeral a week before he died. So I've, I've got these weird complexities in me <laughs> that mess things up. But it's given me a great opportunity to um, work with people and, and to motivate and, and uh, try and do the things you want to do to make the world a better place. And I was fortunate in when Peter and I got together, he and I shared a lot of similar philosophies. And uh, so we, you know, we were a, a great pair. We worked together. The media might see it different. The public might see it different, but they weren't in there in our relationship. And we were a great team. His life, he was committed to being the best he could. He was his own worst enemy. He, ha- he was a perfectionist, uh, but he was an amazing man and he cared so much for people. And so between us, because we had both grown up with nothing and then when you end up with something, you want to make the world a better place. And so together we did the things that we felt might enrich our community. And uh, he, he got a, a Order of Australia and uh, he was a member of the Order of Australia um, way back in, uh, in the 80s. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's been a very interesting journey 
that enables, has enabled me to travel the world. For somebody who had my upbringing to end up travelling the world, meeting the most amazing people, doing the most incredible things, you know, turned down lunch with the Queen, had dinner with Charles and Diana, all of those sorts of things that people would never have the opportunity have been part of my life, and I am blessed, truly blessed. I think you are amazing, Bev and Peter. Gosh, we miss him. And, um, Bev, when I called you to ask you on the show, you bravely said yes. You are one brave lady because you're in recovery right now, right on the edge of recovery from cancer. Barb and you, Bev, both have experienced this awful disease. How did you both find the positivity to battle on? Barb? Well, I I believe I I did have great backup with my husband, Laurie, and I looked at um, lost four of my family to cancer and I don't didn't want to be the fifth one. So I tried to turn everything that I saw into a positive. So when I was being measured going through the tunnel where they were, um, whatever they put in your body and you go through screening and things like that, I would always call it my, my circle of healing. And then I would thank the radiographers and saying, thank you for doing all the studies so you could work out what's wrong with me and what's right with me. So just trying to turn all the negatives into a positive that was one of my things and then just through the list of things I had to do each day um you know um you know go for a walk uh, be thankful be grateful say good things to myself and and just to be over and over those things and now I've given those little cards that I carried in my purse I'm getting better and better every day uh, I've given them now to somebody else and they now carry those very strong thoughts with those cards in their wallet. I'm so proud of you and I'm lucky I have you. Otherwise we wouldn't be doing we wouldn't be on air, would we? Because I can't work out the technicalities. And now Bev, how did well, you with, cope? With me, with me, Julianne. I have had a life devoted to health and well-being. At 21, I had two compression fractures in my neck, third and fourth. Um, and so when you are young and, I mean, I'd always been healthy, we lived out, you know, simple food, all that sort of stuff. So I, uh, I studied nutrition, which was an important part of my home economics, but also for Peter's life because he was a, an endurance, adrenaline, all those sorts of yep. things. So nutrition yep. was part of my life. So... Health, meditation, diet, nutrition, you name it, everything. I've, I've never drunk. I've never smoked. I've never taken medication. I have had this life of focus on health and well-being. So two years ago, my daughter uh, took me to her in-laws for Christmas dinner and I got really sick, only ate a tiny amount, couldn't eat. My daughter says to me, Mum, you either go to the doctor or I put you in emergency. So go to the doctor, the doctor looks at me, does all these tests, nothing wrong, you're a bit tired, get an iron infusion, I don't do them, go and get them somewhere else. Within two weeks, I'm on death's door, I've dropped down to 53 kilo, I'm in hospital dramatic surgery, six weeks in hospital, liquid feeding for those six weeks because I was skeletal. And so from there, um, I have a mindset that says, you know, life is what you make it. And all my public speaking for many years has been on health and well-being and creating, you know, this life of, of health and well-being. And then everybody's saying to me, look at what, why you? Well, you can't work it out. 
There's nothing I have done. I have, we lived on a, we had an organic farm for God's sake. So everything I've rinsed, I've rinsed every plate I have washed from dishing soap. Never had fly spray. You know all of these things that you would think can help health and well-being, but it hasn't. So now I am in this um, battle, and mm-hmm. uh, it is. Uh, uh, it's an interesting, it's an interesting journey, but suddenly you find your kids want to take over, and and I love them to bits, and they're doing great things. But at the time when I was diagnosed, there were a lot of high profile friends of ours, you know, we've got Olivia, we've got John, a lot of them were mm. cancer, and the last thing I needed to do was to get out there and be another, you know, dag that said I've got terminal cancer. So I kept it quiet because people were questioning, and I thought. I'm going to throw doubt into people's minds. If they do all the right thing, they're still going to end up with cancer. And that is not a good thought that you want out there. So I've shut up about it all this time. But in the end, what is really important to me is that people know their bodies. And when they know that there's something not quite right, they don't accept the doctor's opinion. Hear, hear. Because that's what I did. Hear, hear. Mm. Yeah. And, and so to me, it's vital that people tune into their bodies, know when it's not right, follow through, and because I, I, if I had gone in, you know, a couple of months earlier when I thought I had problems, I may have had a completely different – but if I hadn't been healthy, I wouldn't be here now. So six to one half a dozen. Yeah, well, we're lucky to have you, and you've got a great – a great uh, mindset, and and I my hats off to you. And you also said that you might experience brain fog, and you might miss your words. Well, lady, you got the chain of words going really well. You're, you're chugging along at a great speed. Um, so uh, now we're going to talk about mental health and the pitfalls of being a champion, and that it. Really, anyone who has a stint in the public eye, Bib, and I must say I had five minutes in the sunshine and it was the most lonely, tortuous time I've ever experienced. So I understand. And I've also had, I've gone off script here, I don't have a script anyway, I've had in times of deep depression many decades ago, I was in a psychiatric hospital. My God, there are more people there than are in a TV <laughs> green room. It was superstar after superstar. And they all, a lot of them had, um, what's the word, uh, problems with self-worth, me- measuring up their public status, substance abuse because they had they'd lost the adrenaline high, all these things. So when you look at our superstars, remember they're human beings and they can suffer. So, Bev, you, you're going to tell us a little bit about Peter, I think. I am. Look, the, the interesting thing is for me to have come from a very simple upbringing and valuing the, the qualities of life that my family embraced. You know, they were simple folks. There was no high profile. But, you know, my life has led them in a completely different world. Now, one thing I've discovered in, in that journey in all those years of teaching, travelling interstate in the world, is that just because a kid can kick a football, hit a tennis ball, go out there and do something on the sporting field and excel does not mean that they are a Rhodes Scholar. It does not mean that they've got their act together. It does not mean that they've been raised in a solid household. And so a lot of these kids struggle. And you can't blame them. 
I actually um, did a lot of interviews for the personal, for the archival history of Collingwood, Carlton, Richmond and Hawthorne football clubs. So all the best and fairest, the captains, the, you know, you name it, the leading players in, in those football teams. And it's amazing how many of them struggle because they have success so early and it comes naturally. But they've got to keep it going. Whether yeah. you're an entertainer, whether you're a sports person, whether yeah. you're a, a, a politician, you've got to keep it going, and that is bloody hard. And so I look at them. The football clubs are taking responsibility, and they are educating these young kids where they go into their homes, talk to their parents, and embrace them and take it fully. So, But I look at these poor – and I'm going to upset some women here, but the guys get pursued – by desperate women who will do anything to have a night or an occasion with the person of the, the guy of their choice. So I spent 28 years <laughs> looking at these women who would do anything to get Peter aside. And any guy who has a constant smorgasbord of delicious females there after them all the time is red blooded, the testosterone driven, the human, and they are going to make mistakes. That's life. That is the reality. But what we've got to do is go easy on the people that we want as our role models. We've got to understand that they are human, that they're fallible, they're like everybody else, and we've got to get in there. I get very disappointed. I was really disappointed with so many women that they had so little self-respect. They didn't, they didn't uh, you know, take any notice of the sisterhood. If they want a guy, if they want this, if they want that, they will go and do it. Whether it's a, a, a female, a male in transition, it doesn't matter. There are women with agendas and they will trash anybody else's relationship. Now, it doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen a lot. And I look at the mindset of our sports guys, not guys, just guys, girls. I look at the mindset and know that they have challenges there. They need help, not all of them. But all we see is headlines saying, you know, this rugby league player has gone and done this, this, this football player has gone and done that. There's criticism all the time. And yet most of these football teams, most of these sporting teams go out there and do an enormous amount of good in our society. They, they train kids. They go and give. They're generous. All of those things. And we need to be very much more aware of the value of that in our society instead of being... Uh, cutting people off at the knees, you know, knocking people like we uh, have a tendency to do. We need to understand that we are all human, all fallible, all out there trying to do our very best, and we cannot do more than that. Wow, beautifully said. I'm 100% behind you, having met the devastation I've seen because of yeah. those things. That, that well, Can I just say yeah. on top of that, um, because... Peter and I worked together closely. We discussed everything. Before he went out in public, we'd have chats. And if he felt when he came home that he had let himself down, we'd talk about it. How do you handle that differently? All that sort of stuff. So at 60, he's contemplating retirement. Didn't want to know. He's a Peter fan. He does not want to retire. He's still doing. He's still winning pole positions. And he, we, we had separated because he wanted for the first time in his life to manage his own problems. He made me promise that I would no longer fix his problems for him. 
So, yeah, I'll go along because he wanted to become a person who was independent. He'd had managers. He'd had all of these structures in place where people and myself did all of these things for him because he was so damn busy. So, (coughs) pardon me, six weeks before he died, I get a phone call and he's he's teary and he's saying, Vivo, I need to tell you that I'm retiring. He said, I know that it means a lot to you because we've been through a lot together. I just want you to know. He said, but I am a failure. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, I'm a failure. I failed as a partner. I failed as a father. I failed as an individual. I've never achieved anything worthwhile. And I was, I was absolutely, completely staggered. And I thought back then, we're talking about 2006, um, mental illness really was still not talked about much in, in high-profile sporting people. And I, I said to him, but we don't see you that way. And he said, that's how I see myself. And he hung up. Now, he, he, he did say to me, I don't know how to fix it, but I was remembering promises to him not to fix his problems. Now, in hindsight, I look back and think, did I ignore that? Did I? Was he calling out for help? And I was remembering the promise that I'd made to him. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change. In his head, that's where he was at. Did that influence the accident? I don't believe. I believe that he was making decisions that he'd never made before because he was trying to find out who he was, where he was, and what he was doing. And it was an accident. And people say to me, he died doing what he loved. That is absolutely stupid. He was the master of the 05 driving, class driving, you name it, he did it all, and getting out there and educating young drivers. He was the face of road safety. And so for him to die that way would have been the most embarrassing, the most, the worst thing that could have happened in any way, shape or form in mm-hmm. his head. But he was already struggling. And, you know, you can't pick somebody else. You, you know, it's their journey. You can be there for them. You can support them. But in the end, the choices are theirs. And... You know, we, we the, the whole of the country, uh, still to this day, I still get people come up to me and, and want to give me a hug and say, you know, you've done it tough. I haven't done it tough. I, You know, things get, we all have troubles, everybody. That's life. That's how you learn and grow. But, you know, I have to look back and say, ultimately, I am not responsible for the choices that anybody else makes. Just the same as you aren't, just the same as... Any one of us. We are only responsible for our own choices and we make squillions of them every day. So we have to get used to the fact that there are going to be consequences no matter what choice we make and how do we get around that. Yeah, that 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 is. You choose and and there's a chance, but then there's a can be a wonderful outcome. Sadly, oh, yeah. it was not Peter's outcome that was so Wonderful. But, hey, girls, girls, let's have a little bit of fun to cap it off. Barb, you met Peter at the Olympics. What were your thoughts about him? We had a a lovely time. Both my husband, Laurie, and I were Olympic volunteers in Athens in the Olympic Village working and embedded with the Australian team. And Peter's role there was as a liaison officer and his role was to inspire and uplift the athletes with their day-to-day coping with the press, coping with their own uh, mental issues and just being a sounding board to know that somebody high profile has been through those things and actually understands and um, also to um, the highlight of um, or the dealing with 
other athletes who are on your team, how you deal with your coach, how you deal with the coach who's appointed to you as well um, within the Olympic um, management system. And we, I've got a beautiful photo, which I'll send to Julianne, she can send it on to you, where there's Michael Wendon and Peter and my husband Laurie and I in the Team Australian office with lots of green and gold and things in the background and, and it's a beautiful one. But he was very... um he. He wasn't like Rara, like a beautiful Laurie Lawrence who reads the poems and gets everybody all excited. He was not like that. He was more calm and um, uplifting in a different way. So each there had four liaison officers and each one sort of complemented each other. It was just brilliant and I really have fond memories of that. Oh, that's lovely. Interesting. Interesting, Barb, because when he was athlete liaison for Sydney, I'd get phone calls about 9.30, 10 at night. Now, back then, they didn't have chefs for the athletes, and he would be horrified at what the, the swimmers and that would come and want to eat when they came back in. It's absolute crap because I was a nutritionist and all of that. So he'd ring me and say, Bevo, what was it you put in that mixture that made the endurance race? What did you do here? And he would then go to the kitchen, tell, order these particular meals and supplements and that for the crew and take it out. And, and I used to think he must drive the team nuts because that was how he worked. And, and any time at all and anybody had a question or anything, he said, I'll just call Ben. He'd just give him my phone number. And so the phone would ring from anyone anywhere around and they'd go, but what do you do here? What do you do there? And I, I'd get to the point. And if he was home and I answered the phone, he'd get cranky. I said, but Peter, you're giving them my number to get answers <laughs> and I up to the phone and you don't like it. <laughs> he, was, he tried to be all things to all people, but, you know, you've you got to squeeze it in when you can. <laughs> oh, can I tell you my funny story? And, Bev, you laughed and laughed when I told you. Well before you were thought, thought of, somewhere in the middle of last century, I knew nothing about motor racing, but someone said, I'll fix you up with a blind date. His name's Peter Brock and he's a motor kart racer, right? So I was living at home with my parents. I'll try and make this brief. So I'm in Sydney, folks, and about 30 miles or 40, 50 miles away is the racing track. Peter and his co-driver, I get a phone call at 8 o'clock. They were meant to come. We're lost. How do we get to your place? They were at Palm Beach. Now, Palm Beach in Sydney is not like Palm Beach in, where is it, Nevada? Have I got it right? Probably wrong. Um, <laughs> it is um, way up the coast, the end of Sydney. So I cancelled the dinner, dinner and then I ordered Chinese. So they finally arrived, must be about 930 I put the Chinese in the oven at top, hot, top heat. I am not a cook, but I've found out that Peter isn't either. So he didn't blame me too much. And, and really, Bev, this is the beginning of our friendship that's lasted for so many years, <laughs> laughing over this. I, the, all the plastic around the Chinese melted. So we had cheese on toast. Stuck that up. Dessert. You know, I'm at mum's place. I go to the freezer. We see... We see waffles. Okay, we take the waffles out. We put them in the in the toaster. Of course, they're frozen, so they were still frozen in the middle. In the middle, and served the dessert with ice cream, chocolate sauce. Peter put his spoon in. The waffle went up in the air onto his head. 
and danger on his face. He had a great sense of humour about it. I was so embarrassed. Now, I couldn't, I'll end this story shortly, but then there was coffee. I cannot stuff up coffee. And mum and dad had those doors with big handles. And folks, if you remember in the 70s, those long fluffy chiffon sleeves, well, I wrapped it round the door handle as I went through. The door came back and knocked me out. So I won't go on. This was not the date and love of my life, but I adore him as a friend. Oh, I've got to finish that story. It, it gets better, folks. I joined Pontus. Outrageous. Can yes. I just throw in there the plastic over the food? At one stage, things got pretty intense in our relationship. I needed time out, went and climbed in the Himalayas, froze <laughs> food. I was gone for five weeks. So I filled the freezer, labelled everything with all the food, said to the kids, because uh, they were teenagers, the eldest was teenager at the time, I head off to the Himalayas. I get back and my eldest son says to me, Mum, don't you ever do that to me again. I said, what do I do? And he said, the first meal, Dad pulls it out of the freezer, sticks it in the oven, it's still got the gland wrap on it, it's all got pebbles of gland wrap in the food. <laughs> and he said, and I had to take over the cooking for five weeks. Ah, <laughs> oh, I love it. Well... <laughs> Well, he got... He, he could do peanut butter sandwiches, but that was the extent of his ability. Well, that's better than cheese on toast, maybe. But I have to end this story because it's got it's a clincher. I hadn't seen him for about four years, but he hadn't forgotten me. I tell you what. Um, I then joined Qantas, and somehow I was the first-class hostie. And the first class was full. I walked into the cabin, seen Peter. We've recognised each other immediately. He's... For flying people, he was in 4A. And he yells at the top of his voice, all through first class, do not let that woman serve me food. Oh, my God, I was, I could have died. And the chief said, okay, you better stay at the end of the trolley and don't touch anything, just serve wine. So that was his last laugh, Bev. <laughs> Well, at least we had a good time, Julianne, and we can look back on it and smile and know that we have done some exceptional things in life that other people have missed out on, and we are blessed. It doesn't matter the trials and tribulations. They are part of enriching who we become, mm -hmm. and this is life. You know, I, I look back with very fond memories. You know, if, if he was to walk in the door today, I'd want to shake him and say, you silly bugger, but yeah. I do know that he has gone to a couple of close friends that he really respected and, and regrets the decisions he made. You know, this is before he died. He regretted mm. some decisions, but it was in the, the throes of trying to change his life. You know, but that's life, isn't it? It is. You never know what's around the corner. I could go out tomorrow, stage four cancer, but I could get hit by a bus on the corner. Who knows? We know. We've got to make every moment count and um, embrace life and even embrace our mistakes and say, what have we learned from this? But I'm going to move on now because I'm going to say again, um, you are a legend in your own life and, and, a, and a, great, um, a great ambassador uh, for Australia. Now, uh, as you said, you and Peter set up the Peter Brock Foundation, helping the community and people in crisis, and you are patron of the Lighthouse Foundation for Youth, as you mentioned. 
and both Peter and, and Skyline Education and Sky. I missed that one. I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah, <laughs> and I know. <laughs> and Rosalie, my no, God, we can't stop this lady. Okay. <laughs> even even recovering from cancer doesn't stop her. Listen to her now. And um, both you and Peter have supported me in my efforts to raise money for mental health research. And bless you both. And thank you for being on my team. And um, I think as a scientist, you appreciate what the Black Dog Institute for Mental Health Research does, Beth. Totally. Absolutely, totally. You know, the world is in greater need now than it has ever been before, and we've got to all get in there and mobilise and make sure everybody feels supported. Yeah. And and so I'm going to say, folks out there, yeah, Google Black Dog Institute. It's a not-for-profit, so they need our funds. And, yes, Bev, you and I both have a passion for science and research. So thanks so much. And, of course, Barb Smith. And as Bev would say, enjoy health and well-being today and enjoy an even better one tomorrow. Thanks, guys. <laughs> well, the, the, the interesting thing is neuroplasticity and biochemistry, the brain and epigenetics are my interests and they are yours. Yes, they are, very much. If we could employ all that today with mm. modern technology and everything the world we could fix the world but we've got to get enough people who are willing to do it yeah it will happen so the more we put in and the more interest we take and the more funds we 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 do it for the next generation so folks crack your piggy banks open and thank you girls again thank you barb thank you bev thank you darling appreciate it all the best we'll talk later